Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. My name is Dustin. For those that do not know me, um, I am a ruling elder here at New City, as well a mission partner uh, along y'all. So thank you for having me. Um, a few months, or a few, about a month ago, Roger invited me to come and to, to share this morning, um, not knowing where the Bradberries would be, um, where we're to, or where Roger would be, and so here I am. And I'm excited to share with you just the word that God has given to me, um, the hope of our, t- our message for today. And so this morning, before I kind of jump into our text, which will be Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want to share a little bit of a story, which I think kind of helps connect us a little bit to the context of our passage and the letter to the Ephesians. A few years back, as many of you all know, I work with college students. I was working in Pennsylvania, taking a group of college students from Geneva College, and we were taking them out on a leader's backpacking trip. And we were going backpacking in West Virginia, and part of the course, we would be taking this group of college students into a cave to go caving. I don't know if any of you all have been caving before. For some, it can be a very frightful experience, and for others, it can be a very joyous experience. So to get this group of students ready who had never been into the cave before, we had to get them grounded up, get them suits on. It was kind of a muddier cave. So we put their suits on, gave them a hard hat, gave them a, a headlamp. And in order to get down into the cave, you had, literally have to get on all fours and you got to crawl in to eventually where you'd kind of come into a larger room. And the first thing the students notice is once they get into the cave is the utter darkness of the cave. And the interesting piece is that as you get farther back into the cave, the darker the cave gets. There's two moments that I remember from that story, that that experience. One is that we had challenged our students to go back into this little room, into this pocket, deep into the cave. But in order to get into that little section of the cave, you had to go through what was called the birth canal. And so in order to get through it, you, you start to crawl, And the space between your chest and your back, between the walls, gets smaller and smaller and smaller to eventually where you're literally having to breathe out, to exhale, to move another foot, to where then you have to exhale again to breathe another foot. And so you get back into this little room where you're able to turn up onto your side where you have part of the, the, the kid that's on your shoulder and you start packing students in like sardines. So we eventually got 13 college students into this little pocket. And the one thing I remember from this experience was just the overwhelming sense of this feeling as if the darkness and the cave were just pressing in around you as if you were not able to get out. The second thing that I remember from this experience with the college students is we had taken them and we put them up into a passageway. We had taken their headlamps from them and we instructed them that they had to walk down the passageway until they found us as instructors. They might not have known that they were safe, that we, we knew that the experience was going to, they weren't going to get lost, but they did not know that. And so eventually, the, the students worked at the courage, and they walked down, worked their way through the cave, until eventually they got to us as instructors, at which point we then lit a candle in the midst of the cave. And this is a pretty amazing moment when the candle was lit, because the light of the candle pierces into the darkness, bouncing off the cave walls. You could see and feel the students' relief on their faces. The light of the candle had brought both orientation to our surroundings, but also it gave us hope. And I think similarly to our own lives, or at least for me personally, 
that life can sometimes feel like we're in a cave and the darkness around us or the pressures of life are just pushing in. The orientation, trying to figure out your way around obstacles, but you can't really see because it's, it's so disorienting. And the farther you get back into the cave, there's ups and downs, and the more that you're in this darkness, the harder it is to find your way around the cave. And I think the context of that is very similar maybe to Ephesus, which Paul is very familiar with. Paul first comes to Ephesus, which is a city, a very diverse city of different spiritual practices. And he first comes to them in Acts chapter 19. When he finds a group of people that were following John, he then baptizes them into the the Holy Spirit, and the light breaks into the darkness, so much so that a revival breaks out. And from there, you start to see that lives are being changed. You start to see that people who once practiced different sorts of magic and sorcery were taking their books and they were burning them together. The way that people had done their life was dramatically being changed. People who were once dead in their sin were now alive in Christ. The gospel had done something. And so much so that the opposition started building against the Christians that were there, different business folk who were who had their means or their, their money that was wrapped up into the idols of the age, started raising up a riot against them. After a while, Paul leaves. He then heads, he prays for the Christians that are there, and he leaves to Jerusalem, where he is then arrested, almost loses his life, and is carried off to Rome, which is, I believe, where he's writing this letter from. Paul writes the churches there in Ephesus, knowing intimately the discouragement, the temptations to their own sin. And he writes to them in the first three chapters of of Ephesians, the riches of the gospel. And so let's jump in. If you have your bulletin with me this morning, go ahead and open that up. And if you would, please stand while we read the word of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to take a seat. So Paul, go ahead, he, he writes to the churches in Ephesus and he encourages them in the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we see that Paul reminds them about their condition in Christ beforehand, before Christ, and he reminds them of their condition in Christ afterwards. And so my, my proposition to you this morning is that we are far more sinful than we will ever realize, and yet far more loved than we'll ever comprehend. 
Paul first begins his letter there in Ephesians 1 through 3, and he reminds them of their condition before Christ. And he's writing two different groups of people here. In the first verse, we see Paul addresses, and he says, And you, Gentile Christian, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, lockstep with the culture and followers of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience. Paul then talks to a different group of people. He says, but among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul then talks to the Jews that are in this area, including himself, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The thing I want us to kind of see here this morning in the verses 1 through 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It wasn't just the Gentiles, it wasn't just the Jews, but it was also Paul, including himself in this condition. Paul, in Romans 3, 11, writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understand, no one seeks for God. Before Christ, the condition of Jews and Gentiles, including the Apostle Paul, was that they were dead in their sin, hopeless, and ultimately separated from God. I think there's three takeaways that we can take away from this, this little section this morning. So three points. One is that our condition is worse than we assume. A former professor of mine wrote a satirical song titled Little Hitler. His song goes like this. There's a little Hitler inside of you and a little Hitler inside of me. There's a brutal killer within everyone. The hatred grows inside us naturally. You may be smiling on the outside, but inside you would love to see me dead. You would love to take a two-by-four and knock me to the floor and take a 12-gauge shotgun to my head. A little dark, okay? I don't think at any moment that any of you all want to come and kill me. But before Christ left in our own sin, Paul tells us that we are dead in our sin, lockstep with the culture of the air, and literally servants of Satan doing his bidding here on earth. My fear sometimes is that we see sin as moments where I messed up, or I made a mistake, or I was just being human. Rather, as another Christian author put it, it is a condition in which we are disease-ridden from foot to head, or if we take the language of Ephesians more seriously, then we are seriously dead. Our condition before Christ is that we were not just doing this sin. Rather, it was the core of who we were. We were sins and children of God's wrath. We were enemies of the gospel. Jesus himself is not just pictured as this lifeguard that jumps into the water that saves us. Rather, Jesus himself literally dies into the depths of hell, grabs our soul, and lifts us up out of death and into life. To continue to quote the same author, Christ was not sent to mend wounded people, or to wake sleepy people, or to advise confused people, or to inspire bored people, or to spur on lazy people, or to educate ignorant people, but to raise people from the dead. Two, it gives us a framework of how to understand the world in which we live. Oftentimes, I don't know about you guys, but I'm on social media way too much, and I start to see things, and I start to think, man, how does the world think this? Or how do they not see God? Or why are those who I love the most sometimes making the, the, the craziest decisions we know that are only going to bring them more harm into their life? Let us be reminded that Paul says that we were dead in our sin. To be dead means that we are, we are unable to turn. We are unable to see God because the sin itself literally deceives us. It blinds us from seeing truth. 
And so let us have compassion. Let us be led to, to pity those that are around us that do not know God. For they are literally blinded by their sin, unable to turn, unable to see God. The third point is I think it illuminates this boundary between us and God. First, we see that the Apostle Paul includes himself in this. And Saul, before he becomes Paul, as we all know, is one of the most educated of his time. He is the most um, faithful, zealous followers of the law. And yet he misses Christ. One day at Butler, I was walking around, and there's a sign on the wall, and it talked about, in a paraphrase, it basically said, it's on you to figure out your life. And if you can just figure yourself out, then you will have purpose, and you'll be able to leave a legacy in this world. Our culture tells us if you just indulge your flesh enough, if you just build up enough security around you, for me, it's if I have enough safety and security, then somehow I will be able to work through this life. But the reality is that no amount of speculation will allow us to go from dead in our sin to alive in Christ. Our condition is that bad. We are far more sinful than we ever yet realized. And if I were to end today's sermon right here, it would be a pretty looming gloom and maybe, honestly, a pretty crappy sermon. But thankfully, God does not leave us there. Verses 4 through 7 but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in the trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God being rich in mercy. Nowhere in Scripture does God say that he's rich in anything. But here we see that God is rich in mercy overflowing in abundance. God being, that is at his core, God is rich in mercy. That is who he is. The text could have said that God was reluctant in mercy. He was slow to mercy, poor in mercy, agitated to mercy. Rather, God here, we say, is his being rich in mercy. Mercy is who God is. We may wonder today that what does mercy look like in front of us, and yet we do not have to look any farther than Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of mercy. The text goes on and it says, Because of the great love with which he loved us, you, I, are loved. First John says that Jesus is love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Romans 8.28-39 says, that nothing can separate us from the, from the fierce love of the Father. And if that's not enough, Jesus himself, before the resurrection, prays to the Father. In John 17, 23, he says, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. We are loved as God has loved his Son. In Christ, we are lavishly, abundantly loved and secure in God's love. We are loved so much that Jesus himself, who is God, would have to hate himself. Meaning that we are in Christ. We are part of Christ's body. So therefore, it's almost like your arm is doing something you don't want it to do, and so you don't want to care for it, right? But that would be absurd. We are part of Christ's body, and so we are part of his body. So God wants to care for us. He wants to love us. He loves us the same as he looks at Christ. And you may say, well, maybe it's because I got my life together. 
for me, campus minister, maybe it's because I told enough students about Jesus. I didn't snarl at my kids. Maybe it's for you. You didn't kick the dog. That somehow God loves you, and that's because of these X, Y, and Z, because of my own works. Rather, we read in verse 5, it says, Even while we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ. Paul in Romans 5, 6 through 7, it says, For while we were still weak, at the same time Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love to us, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The profound mystery of all this is while we were dead in our sins, God created a way when there was no way. Paul continues his letter, writing, It is by grace we have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in the heavenly places. We're not just only saved from our sin, but then we are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, you are more secure than you ever will be at this present moment. But why? Literal enemies of God. I don't know about you all, but I have some enemies in my life, and I don't think naturally I would want to die for them. I don't know about you all, but we were literally enemies of God. But God, being rich, being rich in mercy, and abounding in love, the great love of which He loved us. But why? Verse seven. If you read that, it says, "So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." immeasurable. Think about that for a second. We are unable to measure the riches of grace for us. We get to spend the rest of eternity getting to learn and discover more of the riches that God has for us. And if you continue in verse, it says, in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kindness of Christ is meant to lead us to further repentance. Why? so that we discover more of who God is. We get to experience more of his love for us. We are not capable of measuring the amount of grace and mercy that God has for us. And let us not mistake, in verse 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We are part of an incredible story, far more loved than we will ever realize. But let us remember that our faith is a gift. If you've turned from an addiction, that is God's grace and his mercy in your life. The fact that you are even here this morning is God's grace and his mercy in your life. Our faith is not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon Jesus dying and raising from the death and giving that to us because he is being rich in mercy and abounding in love. We have an amazing father who loves us so deeply. He gives us his mercy and grace in our life. But that mercy and that grace is to then lead us to the ultimate gift, to know God. 
John Piper says the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and the value of God. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle of seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. This morning, as you look around, each one of you, if you are in Christ, you are a trophy of God's grace. And we get to spend the rest of our lives, this side of the cross, getting to experience more of God, more of his riches, more of his grace in our life. But the reality is that it's hard. And it's challenging. For the past two months, my family, we, we moved, we had a baby. I've been, well, not me as much, my wife has been experiencing more sleep deprivation. But the reality is in our weakness, in our, our, in our struggles, even this side of the cross, we still struggle with our former selves. Still tempted to despair, still tempted to forget the story that we are a part of. And so intimately, I, as a confession, I've been struggling with anxiety these last two months. And it's been hard. Thinking to myself, if I just wake up in the morning, that'll be gone. And the reality is it hasn't. Even this morning, waking up with it in my life. And for no apparent reason, it's a struggle. The Apostle Paul, writing this letter, is writing it from prison. And Timothy himself, who eventually will be over the Ephesus himself, will be beheaded and also put into prison. We, in many ways, like in that cave, have the world around us pressing in. Sometimes it's disorienting, sometimes it's incredibly challenging, and we find ourselves on this path wondering, what is our next step? How do we get through this job? How do we love our, ch- our child when they're screaming at us on the counter? Trust me, I have a three-year-old. I know what that's like. It's hard. But God's grace and his promise is that God is sovereign even over all of this. The faith that you have is a gift so where does that lead us? It leads us to lean, to lean in and to trust our Father who is rich in mercy, abounding in love. A Christian author tells us a story about a doctor who goes deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He he is independently wealthy and has no need of any financial compensation. But he seeks to provide care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. And finally, a few brave young step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And what does the doctor feel? He feels joy. His joy increases to the degree to the sick come to him for help and healing. It is the whole reason he came. How much more if the deceased are not strangers, but his own family? So with us and so with Christ, he does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed strength, for renewed pardon, for the distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. So far, while we are yet far more sinful than we will ever realize, we are far more loved in Christ. And you have a Father who is richly, rich in mercy. And so this morning, knowing our past selves, let us put our eyes towards Christ, being aware of the liturgies of this world, and pray for, the, pray for those that do not know Christ. And ask for more. Lean in. Get into a community group if you're not in a community group. 
Get yourself a group of brothers or sisters that are able to lean in for you and pray for you that you would abundantly know the love of the Father that he has for you. Because there's so much more. In fact, there's so much more. It's immeasurable. We will never empty the bucket of God's grace and his mercy for us as we continue to push in and follow him for the rest of our days. So let us throw ourselves this morning into his grace and his abounding mercy and sit at the table that he has prepared for us beforehand. New City, you are loved, cherished, forgiven, adopted, blessed, lavished in riches of grace, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are saved from your sin, lifted up with Christ, and set with him in the heavenly places. Praise be to God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I praise you this morning for this reminder that while we were yet dead in our sins, you stepped into our existence while we were unable to do anything and saved us from our sins, lifted us up with you, and placed us with you at the right hand of the Father. Father, and I confess for myself and for others, the journey of following you often has feels like we're in that cave and the darkness is pressing in. But Father, I praise you that the light of Christ which was in us demands that darkness flee in the presence of the light. So Father, open our eyes this morning as we go out this week, as we enter into our workplaces. Father, remind us of the gospel of which we come from, the good news that we are no longer slaves to our sin, but we are slaves to you and loved far more than we'll ever know. Amen.